Welcome to Suit Yourself, the podcast of the Irish Surgical Training Group, the ISTG, hosted by Sinead Ramjes, Fintan Ryan, and me, Biddy Bradley. Whether you're a medical student, a curious listener, or a seasoned surgeon, we hope to provide content that will help develop your knowledge, interest, and understanding of common surgical topics. We would like to emphasize that the information presented in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So, kind of bring things a little bit closer to home, Ireland is developing a trauma system has made significant progress in the last five years. What do you think Ireland as a, has probably, even though we're maybe a couple of years behind the UK in threatening trauma systems, we can use that to our advantage by seeing what has worked and what hasn't worked both in an urban first world setting and also from experiences in austere environments that to prepare for a mass casualty or for example, or God forbid, a, a war. What can Ireland learn from these systems, do you feel, over the next five years that we spent the last five years setting it up? Um, I think Ireland has a, has a huge amount they can learn. I think people have to be open to change and open to learning. Uh, we have we now have two designated major trauma centres in Matter in Dublin and Cork, um, CUH in Cork. Um, I think what's lacking is like we have excellent trained surgeons, but when it comes to trauma, we need excellent trained surgeons who have additional training and interest in trauma surgery. And I think you need both to do it well. Mm. You need both. Yeah. That's what I would say. And what advice would you give to trainees that you both oversee in your NHS and HSE um, positions for SHOs, registrars who are interested in both trauma surgery as a career with an interest in humanitarian work as well? I think you must always have a base specialty, whatever specialty it is, because that's what you're really going to be doing over the next 40 years of your life, really. So you, you need to enjoy the specialty that you're doing. Uh, and then the rest of it is like padding, really. The rest of it is fun. And, uh, you know, trauma um, certainly um, is, is multi-specialty. And if you really want to get involved in it, you keep learning, you know, go, go and watch the neurosurgeons do their burr holes, go and watch the plastic surgeons do their flaps, go and watch the obstetricians do a cesarean section, things like this. You can always build up your, um, your portfolio of everything you can do. Never, you never, ever, ever stop learning. And, um, you know, it's just basically it's fun, but I would say, keep your feet on the ground, get your, go for your specialty that you want to do. If you want to do humanitarian work, then uh, join MSF, join a Red Cross. So the, the MSF is slightly easier to join because they don't require so much uh, presence abroad, mm. um, say six weeks or three weeks or something like that. Uh, whereas ICRC are still on to three months, six months contracts, which is a little bit long and they need to probably change that idea. But definitely work, just do one mission and see if it, if you like it. Um, you need to do six cesarean sections before you go and you can do those with your colleague, you know, in your hospital. Uh, and then just go and um, jump in at the deep end. You've always got now contacts on your phone and you can always call somebody and discuss a case and so on before you do it. But uh, just see, just put your toe in the water and see if you like it. Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. I think you have to be very well trained in your base specialty. 
um, whether it's colorectal surgery, upper GI, vascular, be very well trained in your elective, that has an element of emergencies, which all the general surgical specialties do, as does vascular. And then I think you need additional trauma experience if you want to do trauma, because the decision-making is slightly different. So for me, I went to the States and did a fellowship. People are going to South Africa. I mean, there's lots of routes to there. There's now trauma fellowships you can do in the NHS as well. And then, yeah, I agree with David. Join one or more of the um, humanitarian organizations like MSF. And I went and often did lots of cesarean sections with with one of our obstetricians and I've done some X-fixes. So, so the areas that you're not comfortable with on a day-to-day elective basis, you can get that experience that you can bring into the field because you already have the hand-eye coordination from operating anyway. So it's, mm. not, it's not totally new, it's not brand new. And it's lifelong learning. Trauma surgery is a journey, not a destination. And, and like become an instructor on the STS or STAY or HESS or one of the courses that you're doing it, you're revising it. You're, you're speaking the language regularly to people who have similar experience and it gets ingrained in you. Mm. And obviously these experiences in courses abroad as an experiences abroad, you can bring back to an urban setting. I suppose a, an example from that is that a mass casualty, which nobody wants to particularly pass on in a major city where there's a potential for a lot of casualties, but that's happening every day in a war zone. I suppose what experiences have you bought have been involved in major mass casualties both abroad as well as in the UK and I suppose what learning points do you have for Ireland as a trauma system or for any trauma system both in a developing country in a war zone or in an urban setting it's a very broad question so we can teach that later um, I, th- I think I mean mass casualty is um, difficult at the best of times to be really honest with you and every hospital certainly that joins, uh, becomes a major trauma centre or a trauma centre needs to have a policy uh, and it's all written out and it needs to be gone through with a fine tooth comb, who does what, what does what. I mean, the it's been tried to, and it certainly it's worked very well here in, in London uh, for all the bombings that occurred, the mass shootings and so on. Um, and it does work well. The reason is, is because we have so many hospitals that can take the casualties it's not all come to one hospital which it unfortunately does in a war zone and it it, basically it's chaotic and it's either totally chaotic or it's um fairly chaotic it's never normal it's never easy to deal with and it's trying to get the message across also uh and and morgan's done this morgan has been in in working with the who who have uh, formulated a mass casualty plan especially for war zones, especially for austere environments. And he's taught uh, the WHO plan and it it works very, very well. But you need huge amount of resources before you actually make it work. And there's a huge amount of background um, collection of instruments and, and, and wares before you actually can make it work. And the big problem is, is that in uh, austere environments, there's not the equipment there anyway so how are you going to run a mass casualty in an austere environment? And it, to be really honest, it doesn't work. You just got to do your best. And, and that's what we try and teach people is that you just do your best knowing which patients you should take to theatre and which patients you shouldn't. And have you developed any decision support tools? I suppose you being realistic at blunt traumatic cardiac arrest in a mass casualty is 
probably not someone that you're going to open their chest. No, you're, no, you're right. Old. That that knowledge is out there already. Yeah. I mean, I think mass casualty planning is is about being organised. Yeah. And that's why MTCs do it better, because you 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 do the same thing every night with two or three trauma patients that come in. You do the same thing every night, albeit on a slightly different scale with slightly different priorities. Um, I mean, I mean, and that was the experience we had here with the Westminster Bridge attack and the Grenfell fire is that the mass casualty plan kicked into action. And once you get over the initial, you know, panic or a feeling of panic, everything falls into place. So, I mean, to answer your question directly on blunt traumatic cardiac arrest is you're, you're on a losing end there anyway, even with one patient, never mind several patients. But but it's it's about doing the same thing that you do regularly, albeit on just on a higher scale. And it's about being organized. It's about teamwork. And I think in the, you know, in the war zones, the traumatic cardiac arrest is mainly due from penetrating injuries and blood loss. And, of course, we do teach that. We do teach the surgeons this is, uh, you know, part of the resuscitation process if you do need to think about doing a resuscitative thoracotomy. But do you have the resources? Do you have the 20 units of blood that you do require to get a patient through who does have an exsanguinating a problem that requires a resuscitative thoracotomy. If you don't, and you're not doing it within five minutes of somebody having a, uh, a cardiac arrest, please do not start. And so this is the sort of message we get across. But the big problems at the moment, are, you know, in Ukraine is that they are suffering enormous casualties with massive blood loss. And so they've ramped up their uh, blood transfusion services. And therefore, you know, they either do it or they don't do it and they're beginning to do it now so they will realize themselves that it they're and you have to do this yourself to realize you're in a hiding to nothing sometimes you may get one patient out of 50 that that survives and is that the you know is that enough to keep going but in a war zone a resuscitated thoracotomy is really a no-no and are there um any kind of learnings that you've like in terms of new equipment new devices new techniques that you think has changed in the last maybe 10 15 years to assist in war zones like i don't think reboa abdominal tourniquets are going to make a difference in urban let alone well we teach yeah. you know, fast scanning we, we teach yeah. fast scan we, t we we have all the instruments to teach that and that again the surgeons there have not used it before they didn't know how to you know see if there's a cardiac tamponade or a pneumothorax or a hemothorax or any uh, any exsanguinating hemorrhage in the in the abdomen it's always worth doing a fast scan and and you know that these sort of um ideas and knowledge are, are good f for people to have but it's also it's making the correct decisions and 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 the correct you know operations anybody can do an operation it's not you know but what do you do once you've opened and was it the right thing to do to open the abdomen was it the right thing to open the chest these are the these discussions are more valid than surgical techniques. Uh, it's making that right decision. Yeah, I don't think there's any any device that has made a huge difference in trauma. Really, um, I think you know everything has an intention. Everything you do must have an intention, and the intention in trauma is to stop the bleeding. So, for example, pre-hospital tourniquets. In fact, one of the big things, one of the issues last year in Ukraine was origin of tourniquets because the manufacturers couldn't keep up with demand. Similarly, if you decide to open the chest or open the belly, what's your intention? 
is the abdomen the most compelling source of bleeding on the chest and your intention is to stop the bleeding with a clamp or with your hand and whatever so it, it still is old-fashioned just at the time the clock is always ticking and it's your time to hemorrhage control is probably certainly in the absence of a significant head injury is your, your biggest survival signpost um the only other thing in the last 10 years really is understanding of blood transfusion and I think the world is slowly moving over towards more plasma and less red cells. I think that will and is making a difference. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I suppose we're kind of getting towards wrapping up now as well. Do, do you have anything completely separate to surgery that is going on in your life at the moment that you're kind of excited about or keeps you going outside of work? Oh, so so yesterday, for example, yeah. uh, I've got a I've got a consultant vascular surgeon who I um, I'm his flying instructor, so I teach him how to fly, and then um, every Sunday morning we go to Denham Airport and I uh, teach him how to get trying to get his private pilot's license, and uh, Simon Glasgow, oh, okay. yeah, and um, and then after that uh, I'm taking a cardiologist down the Thames. Um, in a helicopter so I went, we went for a trip down the Thames through London in a helicopter yesterday and that keeps me and my, I woke up this morning feeling very happy and very excited that that's what I did yesterday and I think I have this uh, I have this it, it's like a hobby which went completely mental and um, I've had it for years and years and years and I, I still look back on the past and think should I have done this job or should I have become a fighter pilot and mm -hmm. I still think I should have become a fighter pilot yeah. In the last 12 months, I've started my private pilot's license. Well. Did you? I have, very slowly because of, of other things going on. So, um, yeah, I, I would love to have been a helicopter pilot, but I'm going to do my fixed screen private pilot's license. Well, I'll give you a lesson. You, 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 you said before, yeah, I'm going to take a lesson. But it all started when I applied for the European Space Agency and they rejected me. But because I'd done the medical, I said, I might as well do my private pilot's license. <laughs> yeah, that, but I'm doing humanitarian law at King's Inns as well. Um, I recently bought a double neck Gibson EDS 1275 guitar, same one that Don Felder plays at Hotel California. So, for the next podcast, you'll <laughs> be playing into it. That's fantastic. But um, thank you so much both for your time. Absolutely fascinating discussions. Um, for, to answer your question on the professional side, I think everybody should do, everybody with interest in trauma should do DSTS. And I have no proprietary financial interest in the course. I, just, I direct it, David used to direct it. It, it is a fantastic course. So briefly bring us through DSTS. What is it? When is it? How do you book? It's a, it's a, it's a course run by Royal College of Surgeons of England. We hold it, host it in the UK, Scotland, Wales. We still haven't got it on the island of Ireland yet. Um, so it's owned by RCS England. And David did massive work with videos and um, and syllabus and rewriting the course when he was director. And then he, when he handed it to myself, my co-director, we redid some of the videos and the syllabus and we put a book together, Trauma Code Red. And I think every surgeon should do it. And then if you've an interest in, in overseas work, the stay course they've been put together. I, I've done it's a lot. It's now going to HEST UK. HEST UK, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that brings the SCS, it's kind of the SCS on steroids. It, it's next level for the austere environment when you haven't got lots of blood, you haven't got circulating nurses and you haven't got the big team, you haven't got equipment and it also teaches orthopedics, obstetrics and paediatrics as well. Yes, so you've developed a mannequin for that, is that correct? Yeah, we have a mannequin called Heston. 
and Heston is a uh, is built as the only manic in the world that has about fifty operations on him. Very high fidelity. Very high fidelity. Then yeah. anatomically completely correct, correct, and you can do all sorts of operations. You can do Pringles maneuver. You can clamp the distal thoracic aorta. You can clamp the supraceliac aorta. You can clamp the infrarenal aorta. You can do uh, cattle brash maneuvers. You can do mattox maneuvers. You can do all sorts on him. And uh, we're building another Heston II at the moment, um, which will be available uh, in about uh, 18 months' time. But he is, um, he is better, I think, than a cadaver, simply because um, he has everything on, on him. He's better. Um, but, of course, you can't really beat a cadaver, but the big problem is, is, that, is that you can't take cadavers with you. So Heston's the best option. It's expensive and there's ethics involved and... Um, I, I think working on cadavers is brilliant, but you're you're also at the mercy of whatever disease that person died from, um, which can often, you know, go against the learning opportunity. But, but Heston, very very high fidelity model. I have to say, a big fan of it. And um, there is no one perfect model for learning on other than real life patients as part of your surgical apprenticeship. So I suppose uh, the future for what trauma surgeons will look like in Ireland specifically in the next few years that's really as we go back to earlier that root yourself in your base specialty but get experience everywhere and then augment that with these courses and then you will get opportunities to go away to both either exactly trauma is a team sport and the more different types of people you have in the team like everybody doesn't have to be cut from the same cloth but the more people i think you have in that team will enhance the service overall 100 percent. absolutely well, I said thank you very much. Um, absolutely, absolute pleasure for taking the time to talk with us today. We're extremely grateful. I know that Professor Nod is coming to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland or CSI in the coming months. If you want to tell us a little bit about, yeah. So, so I, I I put in for David to be the guest of honor, the honorary fellowship guest for Chart in two thousand twenty four. She's kindly accepted, and he's coming over for that. So we. Look forward to hearing your talk on the day. I've probably, I've probably heard of many of the after dinner DSTS talks. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm very much looking forward to coming and uh, in February. And uh, I hope that uh, the lecture I give will be uh, uh, as, as good as I possibly can do. And um, I am looking forward to coming. How's that? If you found this podcast informative and engaging, we would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to subscribe and share your thoughts by leaving a review on the platform you're listening to. Our podcast is dedicated to improving valuable insights to surgical trainees, enabling you to stay well-informed about prevalent surgical presentations. Should you have any inquiries or wish to connect, please don't hesitate to contact us at podcast at istg.ie. Many thanks for listening. Until we meet again, stay curious, stay informed, and of course, stay sharp.